guys, welcome to Cornwall Church. I'm so hyped to be with you this morning. I just have to take a quick poll. How many of you guys grew up in the 90s? You know, the 1990s? Okay, cool. How many of you guys maybe were in college in the 90s and you're like, I was grown up, but taxes were still hard? Anyone? How many of you guys were parenting in the 90s? Okay. How many of you guys were grandparents in the 90s and you don't really know what was happening? A few of you? Okay, cool. So uh, I grew up here in the Pacific Northwest, here in Bellingham. I played a lot of sports. I have an older brother, two years older than me, a sister five years younger than me. And what you need to know about growing up in the 90s is this is when helmets were like a thing. Like if you're going to go biking, you should put a helmet on. This just started in the 90s. It was like groundbreaking. And then the other thing we had was Flintstones vitamins. Anybody remember those? And those two things combined would keep us safe is pretty much what we knew. So uh, in 1998, uh, I was six years old, and my dad was a fifth-grade teacher, and he had a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a one-year-old. And he was like, the older two have a lot of energy, and it's winter, and I don't know what to do with them. So he thought it'd be a great idea to sign all three of us up for snowboarding lessons up in Mount Baker. Right? Yeah. So all three of us, um, my dad actually grew up in Minnesota, so he learned how to ski there. So he was trying snowboarding for the first time. So we get up to Mount Baker, um, and you guys might know six-year-olds aren't getting ready for snow by themselves. So my dad would wait to put his gear on until he got us all suited up. So snow pants, jackets, helmets, right, for safety, goggles, little mittens. And he would strap us into our snowboard boots so tight, I really think I'm still wearing them. Like, that's like the most vivid part of this memory is like, those boots were tight. So the boots were tight. We got everything on. And then we go out um, to meet our instructor. But the thing you should also know is when we got up there, you had to be eight years old for snowboarding lessons. And I was six. So my dad looked at me and and my brother, and he's like, you guys both are blonde hair and blue-eyed. You're the same height. You're twins today. And we're like, okay. He's like, you're twins. So if they ask, you're twins. I was like, okay, we're twins. We're eight. I got it. So, because it's the 90s. Were they checking IDs? No, and we had helmets on, so everything was fine. So we go out, we meet our instructor, and I'm sure they told us a lot of really important information, but I was six, and I don't think I listened to it. I was just excited to be in the snow and have a snowboard. So once we learn the basics, they strap us with one foot into the snowboards and put all three of us, me, my dad, and my brother, on a chairlift together. Three new snowboarders. What could go wrong? So we get on the chairlift, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a ride on Dis- at Disneyland. This is what it looks like in case you've never been up to the mountain. I was just like permanent smile, like, oh my gosh, I'm on a ride. We're floating through the air. It's snowing. This is amazing. And so we're just cruising up the hill. And to my dad's um, defense, he had never skied at Baker before, so he didn't know the lifts or the chairs or the runs. Um, And he also would tell you that I am very competitive and athletic, so he thought I would be fine. So as we get to the top of the chairlift, uh, he turns to my brother and he starts whispering some stuff. He's like, hey, you should do this. And I'm like, this is weird. They have secrets for snowboarding? And then we get to the top of the lift where you're supposed to stand up and glide off the chairlift like this next photo. And my my dad pulls my brother up, stands him up, and pushes him. And then my dad gets up and goes off the chairlift. And I'm like, my perma smile is turning into confusion. Because as it turns out, the chairlift is on a loop. And so when you get to the top of the loop, it like clears everything off the lift and then goes back down the mountain. And so six-year-old Caitlin's on this chairlift and no one else is on the chairlift with her. And it whips around and I get like flung into the netting. So I'm like, I got flung into the netting and I'm laying there like, I think this is what death feels like. And... uh, just so you know, the instructor and the lift operator did run to like rescue me, so I wasn't left there for hours. But you might be thinking right now, oh my gosh, parenting in the 90s was a nightmare. 
true. But here's some tea for tonight, for today. Um, My dad took me with him as he learned and tried something new. My dad took me with him to learn and try something new together. And obviously we learned at different speeds because I was six and just got stuck in the netting, but we learned and we grew together. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about discipleship. And discipleship simply means bringing others with you as you follow Jesus. Bringing others with you as you follow Jesus. And that's our definition for this morning. All right, we're going to read some scripture. Our scripture for today is out of Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, when Jesus calls his first disciples. So I'm going to read that for us. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners and other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John and the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. When we look at this story, Jesus and calling his first disciples, we see some really cool stuff about discipleship that Jesus teaches us. And just so you guys know, Jesus made disciples, who so is an expert. So we're learning from an expert this morning. Our first chunk of scripture we're going to focus in on is verses 2 through 3, and I'll just read those again for you really quick. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Okay, so I'm going to break this down for you. Jesus is teaching people, which means there's a crowd because people follow Jesus, right? It's kind of how Jesus rolled. So he shows up along a lake, and there's a crowd, and... What we think Jesus sees is just an empty, empty boat, right? But what Jesus really sees is Jesus saw an opportunity. Jesus saw potential. Jesus saw a new best friend, a kingdom builder, and a fisher of men. Jesus saw someone who he could bring with him as he built the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at Simon Peter in those empty boats. And these first couple verses tell us a lot of what to do and what not to do in discipleship. Instead of Jesus doing everything by himself, he uses Simon, right? Like, if Jesus can walk on water, does he need Simon's boat to preach from the water? Probably not. Also, if Jesus is like a functioning adult, does he need someone to row the boat for him? No, he could have just stolen the boat, rowed out, preached, and then came back on shore. But what we see is Jesus didn't need Simon's boat, but he saw potential in Simon, and he stepped into Simon's life. And that's really important. And you guys probably know, like, if you're making a food or something, do you want a five-year-old to help you? Is that actually easier? Nope. But we teach them life skills, so someday they will be able to make it on their own. But it doesn't mean you're going to get it done faster. But here's the deal, guys. Legacy is only built when we teach others to fish. And disciples are built when we bring others with you. That's how we build disciples. Okay, so a lot of you guys probably know that I'm the student ministry director here at Cornwall, so that means I get to work with teenagers, which I love teenagers. They're crazy and amazing 
and sometimes flawless. And a lot of you probably know that anyone who has to work with students over this last year, since last March, is it's been a wild, weird road of what we can do and what we can't do. And so we were trying to get creative of like, okay, how do we hang out with students? And we had our list of our usual things, and we were like, none of those are allowed. Okay, back to square one. So we were trying to get creative, and then I had this idea. It turns out I know how to snowboard, and we have a mountain that's like really big and majestic, like an hour away, what if we took kids up to the mountain? And this is how our winter snowboarding ministry kind of started. And I learned a really powerful thing the first time I was up there teaching a student. Are you guys ready? It wasn't about me. Parents know this. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about me. When I got up there, I could have strapped into my board and took it off and gone all over the mountain doing everything I wanted to do, but that would have left the student alone, not learning anything and having a miserable time. So the reason I took students up there was I wanted them to learn how to snowboard, to make memories, and to, to bond, build a relationship, right? So I actually had to stay with those students so they could learn how to do it. And when people are learning to snowboard or ski, regardless of if you're little or if you're an adult, one thing has to happen. Someone has to teach you. It's not just something you can like pick up on your own. Someone has to set down their skill level and go at a pace that's safe for you so you can learn and grow as you go. And uh, one of the things that I realized is we, we would be going down some runs and there'd be like fresh powder on the side that I really wanted to go on, but the kids would have gotten stuck. So I was like, no fresh powder, but it's right there. Because that's not the teacher's job, right? The teacher's job isn't just to go off and have fun. The teacher's job is to create a space where the student can learn, and the student will always learn at the teacher's expense. The student will always learn at the teacher's expense. And we see this from Jesus, right? Discipleship was at Jesus' expense. It took Jesus' time and energy and love and probably sanity to walk with these guys that kept messing up for three years. And it took Jesus' vision of who Simon could become, the, the vision of what potential Simon had, for Jesus to step, step into his life. Because discipleship starts with the vision to see potential in others. So this leads us to our first couple questions. What do you see in people? Do you see potential through the lens of grace? Has discipleship cost you anything lately? What do you see in people? All right, our next chunk of scripture is verses 4 through 5. And it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will, set, I will let down the nets. So when we jump into this chunk of scripture, we see our second point. Discipleship can only happen with proximity and time. Discipleship can only happen with proximity and time. So in this chunk of scripture, we see that Jesus, is, he's done teaching the crowd from the boat, and then he turns to Simon, and he's like, hey, dude, let's go fishing. And Simon's like, so we didn't actually catch anything earlier in this same water, like five minutes ago, but since you're here, I guess I'll try it. This is huge, guys. Jesus teaches the crowd, and then he invites Simon to try again. Despite Simon's failures of the day, Jesus invites him to try again. And what's profound about this? You might be thinking, so what? It's Jesus. Here's the deal, guys. Jesus was present. Jesus was there. Jesus was in the boat with Simon. This means that Simon wasn't by himself because Jesus was with him. And this is a powerful thing we can learn about discipleship. When we stay with people who are learning something new, who are learning to walk out their faith, we're actually modeling the gospel for them. 
When we stay close enough to them, we're modeling the gospel. We're sharing our love, our hope, our faith, and our energy until they learn to grow theirs. And if we're actually close enough in proximity to them, we can share perspective with them when needed. And they might be trying, uh, they might be willing to try again if they failed. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever tried something new and no one was with you to encourage you, it's really easy to be like, that didn't go well. I'm just going to pretend I didn't try that. But when someone's with you and they're like, hey, try it again. Maybe try this way. You're braver, right? You have more bravery. So staying with people matters. All right, I have this rad picture of Mount Baker. I got to take this over winter break. Isn't that pretty? So I was up at the mountain with a girl that I'm taking with me as I follow Jesus. Her name's Ava. She's dope. She's a freshman. So we're up there snowboarding, and I literally get paid to do this, by the way, so just drink that in. So we're on a chairlift, and we're cruising up the chairlift, and I'm, like, looking at these mountains, and I'm like, it is amazing. Look at what God's doing. There's, like, light, and it's, like, all pretty. And then she goes, I really don't want to fall getting off the chairlift. And I'm like, what? I was like, just put that down for a second. Will you look at the mountains? Can you just like drink in the mountains? And she's quiet for a couple minutes. And then she goes, oh, but falling hurts so bad getting off the chairlift. And I'm like, bro, set it down. Failure, like we can't prevent failure on this chairlift right now, but we can enjoy the view God has for us. And what was so cool is in that moment, I was proximate, proximate enough to Ava to tell her that she didn't have to think about the failure, but I could encourage her to look up and not miss the view. And I think this is huge for discipleship because sometimes the learner gets too focused on failure that they need someone to help them get perspective. Like Ava needed me to help her like be like, hey, wake up. It's okay. Look at this. Or she would have missed it. And sometimes they need someone that can remind them that there's a bigger picture. Sometimes they need someone that's already been on the journey to be like, hey, dude, you're going to make it. It's a long route, but we're going to get there together. And sometimes they need someone to remind them that God is doing something bigger in their life and the little failure right now doesn't determine the trajectory for their life. So this leads us to our next questions. Who are you proximate to? Who can you share perspective with this week? All right, Luke 5, verses 8, 6 through 8, say this. I'll read it to you. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So when we look at this chunk of scripture, this is what we see. Are you guys ready? Everyone is worthy of going with you as you follow Jesus. Everyone is worthy of going with you as you follow Jesus. So let's break down the scripture. Jesus is in the boat with Simon, right? Simon drops down his nets reluctantly because he's like, I'm not good at fishing today. But he catches so much fish that suddenly he's like, hey, this might be a miracle. This might be Jesus. It all hits him, right? And in that moment, it says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. So what I want us to look at in this chunk of scripture is this. Simon gets a new name. It goes from Simon in the first part of the verses to Simon Peter. But my question is, does Peter actually, is Peter a different person than Simon? No, he's not, right? Even though he gets a different name, he's still the same smelly fisherman who would experience failure and who will continue to experience failure for the rest of his time on earth. So what does this tell us? This tells us that we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged because Jesus picks Peter and his failures, and Jesus picks us and our failures. He takes both. It's not just one. 
Jesus calls Peter, and if you guys remember last week, Pastor Bob was talking about Peter getting reinstated by Jesus. And what do we know about Peter? At some point, Peter's going to tell Jesus, you can't die on the cross. And then Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. This is the plan. And then a couple minutes after that, Peter chops off some dude's ear because he's angry, and Jesus fixes it. And then a couple minutes after that, Peter denies Jesus three times, and then the rooster crows, and then Peter's like, oh, I messed up. And he goes out and he cries, right? That's a lot of failure. If I was Jesus, I don't know if I would have picked Peter because he messes up. But what does Jesus see? Potential, someone worthy of following him. So this tells us that everyone is worthy of being invested in. This means that when we look at people, we need to start putting on a lens of grace and start to see and realize that their growth trajectory is gonna include failure. That's just how it works. So we have to put on a lens of grace and look at them anyway. And this is one of the most beautiful truths of the kingdom of God. Potential in the kingdom is determined by grace and not by human standards. Think about that. I don't know about you and where you're at with your walk with Jesus, but your potential has been determined by grace, not your mistakes. That gives me a lot of hope because I've messed up a lot. And for all the teenagers in the room, we got you. It's going to be a road. We'll walk with you. So this kind of reminds me of the parable of the sower. Um, Jesus tells this parable to his disciples, and it's about a farmer. I'm just going to break it down for you really quick. There's four groups of, of, of terrain that the farmer tries to, to farm with. One is a walking path, one is rocky soil, one is soil with a lot of thorns, and one is good soil. So I'm going to call this farmer a hope-filled farmer because this guy is crazy. He's just throwing seeds everywhere. So the first one is a walking path. That'd be like if you're at Lake Patton and someone's like trying to plant seeds on the gravel path, and you're like, it's not, literally not going to work. But this farmer has hope, so he throws seeds there. And then the next one is rocky soil. The farmer just throws seeds there too. And it's probably not going to work out great, but he's hope-filled. And then the next one is soil with a bunch of thorns. So you might be thinking, well, the thorns are already pretty big. They're probably going to choke out whatever tries to grow. But the farmer's hope-filled, so he throws seeds there too. And then the last is the good soil, where the farmer throws seeds. And you're probably like, finally, he figured it out. That's where it's going to grow. But here's the deal. If we think about how this farmer is throwing seeds, Jesus is instructing us to throw love around like that farmer throws seeds. So the the point of the parable of the sower is we don't get to decide who will grow in the kingdom of God. We don't get to decide. And this means it's not our job to figure it out. We We just get to throw love around. So it means that we don't get to be stingy with our love. We don't get to wait until we see someone that we're like, hey, that's only good soil. Let's plant seeds there. We throw seeds everywhere. We invest in everyone because guess what? God's the one that produces the harvest. God's the one that produces the harvest, and we're just called to invest and love in people, and we don't get to decide their growth rates. So what would the church look like if we started throwing love around like that hope-filled farmer? What if we threw love around to people of different ages who've made different choices with different education and backgrounds and just decided, hey, I'm going to love them and see what God does through that? I think the church would look bigger and more vibrant. So if you guys ever go up to a ski resort, there's going to be a couple things that you guys see. If you see a little kid learning how to ski or snowboard, you're going to see a parent that has to, like, go back up the mountain for them because they crashed, pick them up, brush the snow off, and then push them down the mountain. Sometimes you'll see a little kid that gets stuck on a little incline, and you'll see a parent trying to slingshot them forward with their ski pole. And then if there's adults learning to ski or snowboard, you're going to see someone with like a rogue ski on the ground, like this person fell, the ski went flying, and their buddy's going to go find it. And why do you think we see this? 
We see this because the learning process has failure in it. The learning process is full of failure. That's how we learn. We learn what not to do while we're learning what to do. But if the teacher takes off down the mountain and you leave a vulnerable student there trying to teach themselves, they're not going to learn the right way. And this happens in the church all the time. And this happens in our faith. I have a photo for us. We expect baby believers to turn into this overnight. And most parents would be like, that's easily 15 years. Easily, maybe 20 right? This is what we expect because we, we get people to meet Jesus here, and then it'd be really convenient if, if the next morning they were right here ready to lead a ministry. It'd be so much easier. Like, I don't want to spend the time getting this person to here, but that's actually what Jesus calls us to do. So I was part of this campus ministry when I was at ASU, and they were really good at catching fish. So they would share the gospel with college kids in a way where college kids were like, I think I need Jesus. Like, I think I need this guy in my life. And so they would get these students to meet Jesus. But what they failed at was they wouldn't walk with these new believers in a way that would let them mature in their faith. Because this campus ministry wanted to keep growing. So they would catch more fish. Then the next day they'd be like, hey, new believers, here's a bunch of religious rules we want you to follow because we need you to be mature Christians to go catch more fish. And it actually broke a lot of people. It left people with broken faith because they were hyped on Jesus, but they were never given a chance to follow him. No one took them with them to follow Jesus. And so people ended up leaving the church with a broken faith and a messed up understanding of the gospel because no one walked with them. And guys, this isn't how Jesus did ministry. Jesus didn't meet Peter here and then the next day be like, all right, go heal people. No, it took three years of Peter messing up and making poor choices for him to develop into one of the leaders of the church. And, and think about it. Jesus walked with his squad for three years, and I'm sure he answered the same questions over and over and over again, but he did it by giving them his time, his love, and his sanity, right? He walked with them. So if our faith is a muscle and we need to grow it, we need to create a space where baby believers can develop a foundation for their faith so they can safely get from here to here. We have to create a space that lets them mature at a pace that is safe so they don't end up with a broken faith that could hurt themselves or others. Sometimes up on a ski hill, you'll see people going so fast down the mountain and at first you're like, whoa, they're really good. And then you're like, no, they're out of control. And that can happen in our faith, right, if we don't give people space to mature safely. So new believers have to be allowed to fumble around and build a foundation for their faith that will get them through the trials of life. And we see this from Jesus, because Jesus looked at Peter and decided everyone is worthy of going with him as he built the kingdom. And everyone is worthy of going with you as you follow Jesus. So this leads us to our next question. Who are you inviting to go with you? Who this week can you invite to go with you? All right, our next chunk of scripture is Luke 5, 10 through 11. And it says this, For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John and the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So when we jump into this part of the text, we see our last point. And you guys get four points to this sermon because I talk fast, so you're welcome. So here's the fourth point. Investment always costs you something. Investment always costs you something. And right now you might be thinking, no. Well, if you want to make an investment in like the stock market, what do you have to put down? Some dollars. If you want to buy a house, what do you have to put down? Some dollars. If you want to buy a candy bar, what do you have to put down? Some dollars. Investment always costs you something. 
And we see this in these verses because Jesus is in the boat with Peter, right? And they just caught a bunch of fish. And then Jesus goes, hey, dudes, you're going to follow me and fish for people. And then this wild thing happens. They actually set everything down and follow Jesus. Peter and his squad leave everything and follow Jesus. And what does it cost Peter? Let's think about this for a second. It cost Peter his boat because he wasn't going to drag that through the streets to follow Jesus. It cost him his nets because they weren't actually using the nets to catch people. That's creepy. And then it cost him all those fish he just caught. So he had gone a night without catching anything, which means zero income, and then he caught two boatloads of fish, and he just leaves it on shore and follows Jesus. That's crazy. It cost him his career, his comfort, and his way of life. It costs Peter everything to follow Jesus. And the other thing that happens in this chunk of scripture that we see is Jesus makes it really clear that if they follow him, they'll be fishing for people. And right now you might be thinking, oh, that's cute that Jesus uses like fishing terms for fishermen so they know what's happening. It's pretty cute. But this is the other thing that happens when Jesus says that. So he goes up to a group of fishermen who had just failed, and they failed at catching fish, and he tells them that they're going to fish for people. So he's making their futures really clear. This is what Jesus is saying to them, that they're going to be letting down their nets to catch people, and they'll still not be able to control if they catch anything think about that. So as this fish, as these fishermen sometimes catch fish and sometimes don't, Jesus is like, you're going to fish for people. You're going to sometimes catch disciples and sometimes you won't. And you don't get to decide who stays in your net, but you're going to go fishing anyway. And they sign up for that. They sign up for that. So this means that, that the disciples will invest in the people around them. The disciples were called to teach, invite, and love, and walk with people. And some of the people will still escape the net, just like fish do. Isn't that frustrating? Welcome to the kingdom of God where we're supposed to throw love everywhere and Jesus decides who stays in the net. So Peter was called to fish for people. Good news. And guess who else is called to fish for people? We are too. We're called to fish for people. We see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And I'll read that for you really quick. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When, he, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Just a little side note. If you're following Jesus, you can doubt sometimes because these guys literally saw Jesus after he rose from the dead and were like, is it actually you? So doubt's okay. And then it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Okay, so Jesus is telling his disciples what their job is next. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and bring people with you as you follow me. And Jesus commands the same thing to us. Jesus tells us to bring people with us as we follow him. And what we've learned today is the best way to to teach someone something is to bring them with you as you continue to learn and grow. So they can look over your shoulder and see what you're doing and, and follow you as you do that. And the other really cool part about this scripture is if you think about it, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's awesome. I love mission trips. They're awesome. But here's the deal. If you haven't learned to bring people with you in your family, in your neighborhood, and in your community, it's going to be really hard for you to go and make disciples other places. Discipleship is actually a lifestyle. So if you can learn to live it here in your community, you're going to be able to live it anywhere you go. So Jesus tells us to build relationships with people in a way that will bring people to him. And the last part of the verse is awesome. It says, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. 
that means the Holy Spirit is with us. Like, we don't have to do it by ourselves. So if right now you're sitting here and you're like a little bit sweaty palms, like, ooh, discipleship feels like a lot of work. It is. But here's the deal. We don't decide what happens. We just invite people with us, and the Holy Spirit does the heart change and the mind change in us and in those people. You're just a tool, and and Jesus does the work. But you have to send an invite out so people can follow you. So invite people to go with you. So we're going to jump back up to when I was up at the mountain. So I'm six years old, up at Mount Baker, pretending to be eight. So I'm six years old, up at Mount Baker, and I just got pulled out of the netting, right? My instructor brushed like the snow off and is like, probably get off the chairlift next time. I'm like, okay, good point. So they strapped me into my board, and do you know what happened that day? I learned how to snowboard. Weird, right? Do you know how it happened? An instructor stayed with me and taught me the foundations of snowboarding, so as I kept failing and falling, I could get back up and try again. My instructor stayed with me all day as I tried and I learned so that I, I could ask questions and they could share perspective. No one bailed on me. I wasn't six years old, stuck up in the netting for like 12 hours. Don't worry. Someone came back. They rescued me. And then you know the other cool thing that happened? My dad was with me, right? My dad took me snowboarding. My dad saw potential in me as a snowboarder. He wouldn't have invited me up to the mountain if he didn't think I could learn how to snowboard. So my my dad saw potential in me as a snowboarder. My dad stayed close enough to me so I could learn over time. Do you think I just went up one time and learned in a day? No, I was six, so he took me up every year as I was growing up, a couple times a year, and I would get stronger and better, and I matured, right? Like, over time, I learned more things, and he kept taking me up so I could keep learning. And then my dad decided, like we see with Jesus, that I was worthy of going with him. Like, he was willing to spend his Saturday with me up on the mountain as I, like, got snow in my mittens and probably cried a little. He stayed with me. And then the last thing we see is my dad was willing to invest in me in a way that cost him. Do you think he wanted to like go at a six-year-old's pace? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. I'm sure he could have been hitting black diamond runs and cruising all over, but he surrendered his ability level to invest in me and spend time with me so I could learn and grow. So what does this mean for us, church? I have one final slide for us. This guy's not having a good day, by the way. Skiing usually looks like the other way, like skis should be on the snow. So this, what does this mean for us, church? This means that we have to go back up the mountain and look for someone who looks like this. So if you're walking in your faith and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you better start looking around for someone who's fallen and who is learning and who is struggling, and you should go help them. Pick them up, brush them off, and teach them what way to go next. Go back up the mountain and find someone who's learning and go at their pace, but at your expense, because it's always going to cost you to invest in others. And then the other part of it is this. Do you want to build a kingdom legacy? If you do, you have to invite people to go with you. You have to teach them what what you know and love them how God loves you. That's how we build a legacy. And then why? Because teenagers always ask me why. Why should we do this? Because Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. It's literally a command of following Jesus. Jesus is like, you're following me. Bring some with you to follow me. And if you think about it, this is how the church actually grows. If I start walking with Jesus and I bring three teenagers with me, someday those three teenagers will bring people with them. And that's how the church grows. So the command is to go and make disciples. And if you want to be obedient, take someone with you. And then another, another why, because teenagers always ask why twice, you know. Here's the second why. The kingdom of God is not about you. The kingdom of God is not about you. It's about who we bring with us. So what are you building? Are you building the kingdom of God through relationships? And how could you start this week?
So my challenge for you guys is this. Figure out your who. Who can you grab coffee with? Who can you take for a walk? Who can you sit on a porch with and hang out with? Who is your person you can bring with you as you follow Jesus? And then when are you going to do it? You can wait 20 years to start discipling people, but that's not how God designed it to be. And if you're thinking, hey, I'm kind of new at being a Christian, that's a great time to bring someone with you. Learn and grow together. So figure out your who and figure out when you're going to hang out with them. And then if during the sermon you're like, I don't have a who yet, pray. As you leave today, ask God to show you who you can bring with you. Who in your family or your community or your neighborhood you can take with you.